Well, I grew up with Earthbound. It was a point of connection for my family. This is really early in the, you know, sort of world of localization. There was nothing in the way of tools for us to use. There was a guy in a chat room who claimed to have the ROM file for the game. I, I didn't believe him at first, so I sent him a private message just to see if he was telling the truth. Welcome to Built to Play, your dose of video game news and culture. I'm Armin Bali And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week we eulogize the PSP and gawk at GOG's Galaxy Surface. Also, esports and VR are sitting in a tree and the pre-E3 rumor roundup rodeo is coming to town. Plus, we devote a full half hour to Earthbound's localization and the Mother series. But first, someone load up a UMD with a funeral dirge on it. So, Sony finally killed off the PSP. Which, I mean... From a Western perspective, I thought they did that ages ago. Yeah, that happened like four or five years ago in the West, basically. They, 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 the PSP was dead in the water the second the Vita came out, but it was, it hadn't really had any games in it for a year or two before that. So it's, it's kind of been dead for four or five years now. I mean, one of the biggest issues is also that the, uh, the Vita has the ability to play PSP games, um, through the, yeah, through the store. So it kind of, if you had a, the, the more lucrative, the Vita, while, not selling anywhere near close to the PSP. It's a much better option. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to play PSP games, you probably, it's better off just getting a Vita at this point. Basically, the only PSP game you can't play on a Vita is Mega Man Powered Up, which is a shame. Yeah, because that's a great game. That is actually a lot of fun, and it's probably the the only Mega Man with, like, a level creator built in, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the predecessor to uh, Mega Man Man Unlimited Universe, whatever that game was called. That that never came out with uh, Boxer Mega Man in it. Yeah, yeah. In any case, um, PSP has actually stopped shipping to North America back in January. Uh, they cited an increased focus on the Vita and the fact that literally nobody owned the PSP in America. Uh, Japan is getting discounts on Vitas and PSP games downloads for PSP owners, but we're getting none of those nice things because we don't care about Monster Hunter even a little. I mean, they, Monster Hunter sells decently here, but it's nothing like what it is. Oh, in Japan. Not, that's not decently. Monster Hunter comes here as like a half half hearted like, well, I guess we might as well bring it over to the West. Yeah, but I mean, like it sells. I don't know. It sells as much just like a Tomb Raider, I feel. Um, I not. I don't think Tomb Raider. Not the new one. No, mm, well, like it has its own fan base at the very least. Sure, sure, sure. I think yeah. I think it was a couple hundred thousands of people by, it, but I don't think it cracks a million here. Whereas it does multiple millions in Japan. That's yeah. I mean, it's to the point that everyone who owns a DS, like has a 3DS, has a Monster Hunter game. I'm pretty sure. I well, in Japan, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um. So the PSP actually launched in Japan in 2004, around the same time as the DS, and in 2005 in the West, uh, Sony does actually really keep firm to that 10-year life cycle thing. They really do believe that all of their systems should be supported for 10 years, or at the very least, they will continue shipping them for 10 years, even if nobody's making any games for them. To be fair, the, the, the two systems that they started this proposition up with were incredibly popular and had a reason to exist well into 10 years. Yeah, the PS1 didn't exactly exist in 2005. No, but um, the, the PS... Uh, the PS2, I mean, it has a long-lasting legacy. I mean, Persona um, Persona 4 came out two years after the PS3 came out. Yeah, yeah, the, the PS2, I don't remember exactly when they st- I don't think they even stopped shipping PS2s. Like, Brazil still gets PS2s. Oh, totally. No, but it's, well, Brazil still gets the Sega Genesis, so I mean... <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, the most popular system in Brazil is still the Sega Master System. Exactly, right. <laughs> with uh, ports of... Uh, with, with, mo- with modifications of Sonic for popular Brazilian cartoon characters. <laughs> that is... That is Play Monica. True. Yep. Wow, you know Monica, what Monica you... into dreams. Come on. Yeah, you... <laughs> hey, I'm I researched this bit. <laughs> I am I'm actually very proud of you. And in, in this one instance, um most but all, uh 
Now, most but not all PSP games are available on the Vita, and it's a much better hardware, has a second stick, so you don't need to compromise, um, and you don't need to worry about that signature grinding sound. Like, it feels like the UMD is um, going to get destroyed from the inside out. <laughs> yeah, that was really a bad hardware flaw. Yeah, it... It was a scary device to use at some points. Which well, they tried to uh, fix with the PSP Go and managed to make it even worse. Well, the, the even worse part was that the the PSP Go had, like, the controls were just bad. That's the problem. Like, they made a system out of, like, the cheapest plastic they could find. Yeah, and it was like, uh, it was it was kind of like the Game Boy Micro of PSPs. Except the Game Boy Micro was great. Uh, the Game Boy Micro was a pain to use after a while, though. Oh, sure. It cramped up your hands, but, like, the PSP Go was, like, it didn't even function properly was the problem. That is true. That is true. It required connecting to the internet on the PSP's Wi-Fi system, which was <laughs> sort of trash. Man, I remember when PSPs were... I remember when it was really cool to have a PSP. It was like... Circa 2005, 2006, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that was... You were like... Oh my god, I can play PS1 games in my hands? Before the DS took off in, like, mid-2005, the PSP was, like, the coolest thing ever. Or like, I was, I was, I had a DS, and my uh, my best friend at the time had a PSP, and he was always lording it over to me. He's like, oh, you got Final Fantasy three? Well, I got this full NHL game. And I'm like, hi, you're still playing NHL? That game's terrible. Yeah, that was, that was basically the thing. And to be fair, I had a friend who was playing a lot of wrestling games on his PSP. Really? Yeah, well, I was, well, I was just sort of sitting there, and it's like, yeah, but I have lost magic. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I played a lot of Lost Magic. That game's not good. Well, we all made mistakes in our DS game. Uh, yeah, so basically, so ten year, just under 10 years later, kind of nine years later, it's not quite the 10-year cycle, but it's close enough. We'll give Sunday the benefit of the doubt on this one. It sold uh, about 76 million units on the back of Monster Hunter and a bunch of Monster Hunter clones, basically. And it had a, it had a really good series of games that came out for it. So uh, uh, Final Fantasy Tactics War of Alliance, which is actually the best version of Final Fantasy Tactics. It's a, yeah, it's spectacular. You sh- everybody should play that game. Just ignore all the grinding UMD that goes on when it's loading. Maybe, honestly, download it for your Vita. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, there's also uh, Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. Which is the best game to ever bear the Final Fantasy VII name. Or which, well, let me rephrase, the only good name to ever bear the Final Fantasy VII name. Eat it, ner- <laughs> Eat it nerds. Oh man! If we don't get, we don't get hate mail, but I think someone's just going to pop into existence just for that. You know, Advent Children's on Netflix. The PSP Go, on the face of it, was a very good idea. Yeah, it, listen, an all digital system is something that will be a good idea in five to ten years. It just wasn't in like two thousand and nine. It was a really bad idea in two thousand nine, especially when Sony's ecosystem wasn't even like not every PSP game was available digitally. Right. So you were actually not uh, accessing the full library, and if I'm not mistaken, the PSP Go wasn't all that cheaper than the PSP. Not particularly, no, but not, not, and especially when PSPs were going for really cheap, like, you get a PSP 2000 for really, really, like, dirt cheap with that for, like, 100 bucks. Yeah, and then the PSP Go was maybe 90? I think, like, it, was, I think it was 200, actually. 200? I think it I think you're, I'm not, like, a used one. A, a new PSP was maybe, like, 150, and a PSP Go maybe, maybe also, maybe, like, 180 or something. Well, that just seems dumb. Yeah, but... it was, yeah. I may be wrong, though. If we, someone can fact check us later. <laughs> the, yeah, so, I mean, we'll eulogize the PSP in a much longer format, is part of our upcoming failure month. Yes. Uh, and it'll be very exciting. The PSP was kind of a failure, all things considered. Uh, Sony handhelds have not done super well in general. I mean, 76 million, 74 million rather, is nothing to scoff at, of course. You know, that that's really big, but it's definitely nothing, like, it's a drop in the bucket for Nintendo. Yeah. And the PSP really didn't make inroads outside of Japan, where it really only succeeded because of Monster Hunter. The biggest... The biggest reason that Nintendo succeeds is because Nintendo's DS and 3DS are kind of seen as like a 
it's something for everyone, right? Yeah. Like everyone, there's there's a there's something cute for girls. There's action games for guys, and then parents can get the brain training stuff. There's like there's a reason for perhaps more than one person in the family to have a 3ds. And, and there is that ridiculous statistic where Nintendo actually had DSs in one DS in every Japanese home, so they were trying to sell people on having two DSs per home. Yeah, you can't. But that PSP never got to that point, and it, no. the games available on the PSP just weren't that broad ranging. They were they were much uh, more for the quote unquote core gamer. Yeah. And because and and really the core gamer just wasn't that interested in console level experiences on the go. It just didn't work. That and like just not met that many core gamers. I mean, if you think about like the the amount of proportion of people who play tra- like traditional console style games and then break that down to people who can own both who can afford both a console and a two hundred dollar just um way to play games inferior to that console. Right. Um, then you get to a really small percentage. And, and, I then think... you, and you end up with the kinds of games they want to play, like, you know, act, you know, third-person action games and first-person shooters, and you need two sticks for that, and the PSP just didn't have that. Yeah, I mean, I remember playing, like, the, the GTA, Vice City, Liberty City, whatever stories in um, mm-hmm. on the PSP, and those games were just, they just felt weird because you couldn't control the camera. It was, it just, having a single-stick system, and I mean, Nintendo's learning this now to 3DS, just doesn't let you do console-level you know, console quality ports is kind of what screwed over Kid Icarus from like actually functioning and being a spectacular game instead of just rendering it a great game with a lot of caveats. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's a shame to see a system die, but uh, consider at the very least the PSP is better than the 3DO <laughs> or the Gizmondo. So hey, you know yeah, you know what? Listen, PSP. There's a lot of you came in second place, and that's much much better than eighth. Oh, the world of the future. It is a scary one indeed. Um, speaking of the world of the future, um, Good Old Games is getting ready to launch a Steam competitor right down to having a space theme for their teaser trailer. They are really biting off on Valve style hard with their new optional client, Galaxy, which is supposed to launch later sometime this year, and promises a totally DRM-free experience, allowing people to play their games without ever connecting to the internet. Connected the internet will, however, allow you to play online, um, share achievements, and utilize a cross-play feature that will let you play online with people on other PC clients like Steam and or uh, Yeah, you're not on Origin. <laughs> you're not on Origin. No one's on Origin. Yeah. Um, you can go to the GOG site to check out the Galaxy page to sign up for the Witcher Adventure Game Beta, which will presumably be exclusive to Galaxy, or at least exclusive to its beta, or whatever. Yeah, that, this seems like... I mean, we need a Steam competitor. We do, but don't we have, like, five of them? We, but they're all, like, company-exclusive, I feel like. Yeah, like, we have Origin, we have Uplay. Does anybody else have one? Uh, that might be it for now. Probably Bethesda's going to have one, too. Yeah, definitely. And there's, I know there are ones that existed and have sort of gone away. Yeah, but, like, the, the there was GameSpy, for instance. That yes, was, there was, and that's dead now. Yeah. That, funny enough, Nintendo used GameSpy for, for their, their, their Wi-Fi connection, and that's why uh, Wi-Fi connection doesn't exist. Yep. We should, we could have eulogized that too, but it's, no, we we could, but that would require us caring about Wi-Fi games. On there are a couple decent Wi-Fi games. There was trading on Pokemon. And there was what... trading on Pokemon, which I did a lot of, and there was Dragon Quest Nine DLC. Oh, that, that existed. Yeah, it was. It, there was a lot of there was. You could get costumes from other Dragon Quest games. Okay, and that's about it. <laughs> Not gonna lie to you, that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> well, in any case, um. It's Steam has been growing rapidly and is kind of monopolistic when it comes to things that aren't uh, 
EA games yeah. for the PC. Um, it's also coming to the point where uh, Steam is becoming, we've mentioned this a couple times, it's becoming more of a platform that you can just release your app on. Yeah, it's opposed- definitely not a curatorial service like it used to be. Yeah, and GOG... GOG used to be a curatorial service in the sense that they were behind, the, they just got they, whatever. Well, they just um, published retro games. Yeah, but now it, GOG just, used to stand for good old games, rest. now I think it's just a weird recursive Homestuck reference. Yeah, exactly. Now, instead, it's basically indie games, um, some, three, uh, some third-party games after a while, and uh, a lot of generally, uh, old games. Generally, good, better discounts than Steam unless there's a sale going on. Yeah. Is what you're looking at GOG for. Uh, they're saying that the client is optional. You could probably just launch any game in GOG Galaxy just like you can with Steam. Um, it'll have online functionality to a certain extent. But, like, does it have it? Will it have any exclusives? Because I think that would defeat the purpose of mm. it being an optional client. No, I don't think it will have any exclusives. I also don't think that it'll have anything. Per- like, that's the problem is when you don't make it DRM, there's just not as much incentive to use it. Exactly. Like, third parties aren't really going to be interested I have a feeling it'll be great for indie games, but indie games don't really need a wrapper for launching. You no. know, Steam, I mean, Steam is where they get the most of their traffic just in terms of, like, eyes on their thing. But now that that's not even true, GOG isn't that heavily visited. Uh, I mean, what do you think is probably, uh, what do, do you think they get more sales than, like, the Humble Bundle store at this point? GOG? Yeah. I think Humble Bundle's probably beating them simply because they have those really big like surges when something goes their way. Just right. in terms of like in terms of, like if there's a Humble Bundle going on that week, probably I think overall there's not that many Humble Bundles that I see making waves. That's true. Um, I mean, Humble Bundle has does have their own store now. Yeah, um, but and it's... like on top of that, they do have their bundles. But like, I've at the very least, there's some sense of competition going on here. Yeah, yeah. Those are these are different places you can buy your PC games. But I do have to wonder, like. Here, here's the thing. When it comes to Steam competitors, I think you want to find it ha- have like to compete with Steam now. You need to make yourself really impressive. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be an optional free thing. I don't quite get. For me, this feels like it, GOG is doing a branding exercise for yeah. them. That's really all it is. Like they need to get their name out there so people buy more stuff on their, you know, from their store. Because otherwise, like, what's the point of competing with Steam at this point? You know, Origin and UPlay try and they're failing. The, if you know what, if GOG can do the um, storefront better in that the sense that they can, they're better at bringing stuff that is good up to the top, mm-hmm. even either through having um, consumer rankings that are much more sophisticated than Steam, um, tags that are much more sophisticated than Steam, um, rank or just like a front featured section that is just not hey, what are the three biggest games? Also, these other ones mm-hmm. um, coming out this week. No, I'm just saying there's stuff like Air Control, which came out on Steam the other day, and that's a game that literally doesn't function. Yep. Like, a couple a couple weeks ago, I was like, I, I was seeing videos like people are playing it like playing it as a joke, like it just doesn't work. I believe it's been taken down from the store at this point because there's so much noise about it. But like, there is no quality control there these days. Well, so long as we're talking about Steam, let's move on to the potential future of uh, one of their one of the pop, most popular Steam games, Dota 2. Yes, uh, Valve is quietly experimenting into VR, and they are continuing unabetted with a really weird and kind of scary spectator uh, version of Dota 2. It Valve developers are reportedly working on a VR experience that puts the Dota map on a tabletop, allowing ex- spectators to examine the field closely and kind of look around it. They're also working on a version that lets spectators drop into a combat lane and watch the fight going on around them. Which sounds absolutely horrifying. Yeah, that seems like, oh, hey, I always wanted to know what it's like being in a World War I t- trench. Oh, no, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, VR. 
Um, <laughs> like, I, you know, we messed around with Oculus a couple weeks ago at the Bit Bazaar, and it's like, that was kind of a harrowing experience in these very simple, slow-paced adventure games. Yeah. I can't imagine what watching a Dota match would be like. And those aren't fast matches or anything, but that's like people are punching each other and throwing around, like, spells and stuff. I would, well, I would really hope that you would have much more control over where you're looking as opposed, it wouldn't be that much of a guided experience because I feel like having your head being forced into like a certain lane or position would be increasingly nauseating. Mm-hmm. Um, on top of the origin or uh, current issues with just the um, the problem with if you have the Oculus on your face too long, you tend to vomit. I think like it's yeah. something like after ten minutes or so, yeah, something like that. Yes. Mm. Um, so, so this like. Oculus really needs to, or whatever VR system um, VR uh, Valve is going to be working working with. I there have been rumors that Valve has been working on their own, um, not uh, not their own VR kind of headset, but their own VR technology just for to mess around with it. Yeah, they have prototypes that they allegedly showed off their Steam Dev Days event, uh, where they apparently mentioned that they believe consumer ready tech is two years away. But they made a lot of talk about partnering with Oculus, and they think that they are the ones to move forward with if they are going to invest in Valve, like, if they're going to put money into Valve-invested VR tech. Yeah, I'm just I'm just curious on, will people be able to actually withstand being in VR that long? Yeah, especially with, like, Dota matches take a while. Yeah, that's, like, easily, it's 30 minutes. Yeah, and so, I, I mean, the spectating thing is cool, and could do a lot for esports, I think. Like, that could actually do a lot for, like, actually being there in a certain extent. Like, sort of like being in a football game. Because right now, esports are, it's people sitting in the Staples Center watching people watching computers. Yeah. And at some point, there's just not that, it's not that much fun to watch people watch them, watch computers. It's not dynamic unless you're a big Dota or League player. And I feel like even for something like a shooter, where the competitive shooters have the big problem of how do you, how do you display that? Because um, it doesn't make, it doesn't, it, it's like... Watching someone play a shooter match is kind of like watching someone play football if the camera was on top of their head. Exactly. You, it's not getting the perspective of one player isn't exactly the interesting thing. The only competitive game where you can actually do like live streaming properly is sort of Street Fighter. Yeah, uh, yeah. But otherwise, with Dota League, like they, the, their camera can only be on one section of the map at any one time. And as a result, it's very hard to get the the big picture. So, I. I'm just really curious how the controls are going to be, ultimately. Yeah. And, hey, it'll be cool, simply because I tried watching a league match the other day, and I fell asleep, almost. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, now, so long as we're talking about uh, rumors and potentialities, um, E3 is technically next week. or Yeah, in a few days, actually, as we record this. And when you listen to this, it'll be, like... Two days? Three days? Yeah, who knows? It'll be the mysterious world of E3. You could, hey, listen, you could be listening to this in 2079. E3 ceased existing along with video games in the great video game wars of 2032. I understand. Listen, you are listening to these as a historical artifact. 2032, that is not long until the very that video game. Yeah, wars. no, no, no. Well, actually, you see, I can't tell you what happens, but, like, don't play Assassin's Creed 9. Speaking of robot arms, um, Reggie Fizeme and Nintendo, um, it looks like there's going to be a Mario Maker. Well, maybe a Mario Maker. So what happened was yesterday, actually, this is breaking news, breaking rumor news, uh, a photo, uh, alleged, an alleged photo, leaked from the E3 show floor where people are setting up booths of, there were a bunch of sort of cubicles almost with some pictures of Smash Bros. characters on a bunch of them, and then one of them had a picture of... 2D Mario assets being played around with a stylus and the words Mario Maker over it, and then make your own Mario levels underneath, uh, which seemed a lot more like an ad and not the kind of thing you put on the side of an E3 demo cubicle. 
Yeah. And also, the picture was really blurry, even though we're all... Like, it looked like it was taken off, like, a cell phone, like, an old cell phone camera, like the Motorola Razor camera, when we're all carrying around literal supercomputers in our pockets that have, like... My my phone on its own has, you know, a you know three, four, five megapixel camera on it. Like, I'm not hurting for decent pictures. I can't imagine why this thing is so blurry. Yeah. Um, and also why it doesn't look like anything around it. So there's no reason to believe this is true. Other than the fact that uh, Polygon's Michael McWhorter, used to be Kotaku's Michael McWhorter, very heavily connected to the Japanese game industry, uh, has an inkling that it's real, apparently, which gives it a lot more credibility than it otherwise would, but it still seems super fake to me. Yeah. I don't, like, I don't, I can't also, part of the appeal of Mario games is that they have very good level design, so yeah. I don't know why. I could you'd... see this being, like, the thing is, I could see this being a free tool for 3DS or Wii U. Right. Um, really easily. I can't see them charging money for this. It's definitely not... People are speculating that this might be that. Nintendo is doing two post... Like, during E3, after their digital event, they're doing two 90-minute developer roundtables right. with the press. One of them is for Super Smash Brothers. One of them is for an unannounced uh, 3DS game. Probably, presumably, whatever their big fall 3DS game is going to be. Uh, I can't imagine that's what this game is. If this game is even real, it's definitely not that. Because this seems like, what is there to talk about from a developer standpoint? We put some Mario assets and you can play with them. It's something that indie, it's something that like fans hacked together in 1999. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple other safer bets that you could, is probably, there's probably going to be a Zelda Wii U. Almost certainly. They're going to talk about the new Zelda game. They'll talk about Super Smash Brothers because they're big fall Wii U game. And they had that invitational going on. Of course, yeah. And uh, DS Virtual Console will probably be formally announced considering it was stealth launched in Japan uh, where you can get free Brain Age. Oh, cool. Because... We all didn't own Brain Age already. Yeah, that was that. That was the excuse I gave my dad for why I could own a DS. That's how my brother got one. A <laughs> um, couple long shots. So Tangles freshly picked Rosie Rupee Land HD. My favorite DS game. That game is that game will not exist. And not. Uh, um, but you can cross your fingers. Yeah. Uh, or your toes, or your fairy appendages. Nintendo does actually need to play a big game this year, considering the Wii U is hurting bad. Yeah, uh, they need to get in high gear. Classic IP, a price cut, price cut, all kinds of stuff could do a really good job for this. Like people want a Metroid, people want a Star Fox. By the way, Metroid is what I think the th- secret 3DS game is. But uh, people want a Metroid, people want a Star Fox. I personally really want an F Zero. Otherwise, their financial reports are really going to look super awesome for the next few years. The the biggest problem is that these these uh, these systems just lacking games. Yeah, the 3DS are doing really well and continue to be doing really well. Um, speaking of, we'll probably see something out of you know I don't know like we'll see something of either Nintendo Classic franchise. They always have third party stuff from Japan out of those things. You know, Persona Q is something. Or I was gonna say Shimigami Tensei Crossfire, but that's a Wii U game actually. Right. Um, as for other Wii U stuff, we'll probably see X. We'll probably see that Yoshi game, but. Like, the 3S will be fine. I have I have a feeling we'll probably see a couple games for that. It has to be the Wii U show, though. It really yeah. does. And I don't think the internet will be pleased with whatever happens. Either they'll be mad that their particular classic franchise didn't come back, or they'll be happy that Nintendo is theoretically dying, I guess. I, I don't feel like... I feel like even if the they satisfied fans to the extent, I don't feel like that would be enough, though. No. I think you I think you really have to surprise everyone. They need to blow everybody away with this thing, and that means a ton of games. Nothing but games. Uh, and honestly, I, I want that to happen, because I like Nintendo games, but I, I don't personally know if that's... That's not been in their cards for the last two or three years. It's not, a, it's not on their track record. Then again, three years ago... Two, three, two years ago, or three years ago, is when they announced that they were turning the 3DS around with an incredible lineup of games. So it's not... You know, 
it's un- I don't know if it's likely, but it's certainly not unprecedented. All right, and then there's also a couple of rumors coming from Sony. Um, there's the Last of Us HD, uh, Last of Us HD release date, um, pro- which is uh, I believe July 13th or 23rd or something. It's based on flyers and the fact that we know that game is already real. Yeah, I mean, they tried to hide it for the longest time, and I, I remember a bunch of journal uh, game journalists at the t- um, at the time just going, "Oh, you know that." That probably exists. It's probably real. Because they gave meetings to everyone way before this and then said, um, hey, don't talk about this until we do a formal announcement. And then then it got leaked. There's also a rumored God of War game. Uh, Sony Santa Monica isn't really up to anything these days, but does anybody actually still care about God of War? No, that game sucks. I mean, the the first two were pretty good. And then after that, it was just all kind of comically terrible. Um, The other safe bets include Uncharted 4. Um... A PS4 Vita bundle, considering the Vita is now the greatest peripheral in the PS4's history, mm-hmm. and a bunch of indie games like we did last year, and Project Beast, whatever that turns out to be. Yeah, something from the Dark Souls team. It is Dark Souls with the Dark Souls 1 team. Uh, people are rumoring that it's Demon Souls 2, considering Sony still technically owns the rights to Demon Souls. Oh. Which would make it a PS4 exclusive. Um, so Demon Souls with a shotgun is a possible video game. That'd be actually kind of cool if it was just Demon Souls shotgun. As the shotgun title. edition, yeah, shotgun. They edition. They actually didn't change the game at all. It's just a. It's just you just have a shotgun equipped to you the whole time. <laughs> the the wizard um, pyromancer classes use a shotgun. Yeah, to cast their shotgun spells. Um, <laughs> Sony is coming in really confident that they've beaten Microsoft. Like last year was sort of a victory lap for them. Oh, totally. It was them running around Microsoft saying, "Ha ha ha! TV, what's that?" Um, but it looks like t- Microsoft is trying to get all of its TV stuff out of the way as soon as possible. Yeah, and also, I mean, Microsoft now has a price cut in their ranks, and they're you know they're on even footing now. And we really hope Microsoft doesn't talk about TV. But they, Sony doesn't really have any head-turning exclusives. Well, they kind of like they they already released them. Like yeah, Infamous, Killzone. But was Infamous a head-turning exclusive? I mean, it was a very pretty-looking game, and it, it, but wasn't, it wasn't like Titanfall. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Titanfall was all anybody talked about for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I at this point, I don't think there is a it's, big game on Sony's lineup. It's that, Uncharted, but that's 2015. Last, maybe a Last of Us two. Like that Maybe would... the more of us. Yeah. The <laughs> last of us. Oops. We forgot about these guys. You will keep making that joke. Until... I'm never going to stop making that joke. It's my favorite joke. <sighs> they haven't banned favorite. it. It's CRTC second... hasn't come in yet. It's my second favorite joke, but the CRTC isn't going to let me make the first one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, going on to uh, Microsoft, uh, a couple rumors is... Um, Halo Master Chief Edition, uh, Double Deluxe HD remakes of Halo 1 through 4 for your Xbox One home entertainment console device, just because you can't wait to Halo 5. And also, Halo 5 is technically not delayed, delayed, whatever, 2015. It's, it is coming in 2015. Now, I know Microsoft told you that 2014 was going to be the year of Halo at last year's E3. They lied to you. Yeah. But... <laughs> You will probably be getting Halo 1 through 4 for your Xbox One. That desert was a lie. In the fall. Um, Halo 5 and Halo 1 through 4, and they they were all leaked along with that TV show, uh, which we'll hear about because Microsoft will actually spend 20 minutes on television. Oh, totally. Now, safe bets, um, Forza Horizon 2... Which was announced before E3 like every other video game was this year. Fable Legends, whatever, I don't know. This, these are games. Um, mm-hmm. Long Shots, Rise 2, Grandson of Rome, which would Hope. be... That would actually be in, really... I would I would root for that. That seems like such a dumb thing to do, but I would be in, 
Also, like, a lot of this stuff has already been announced. Yeah, for the last month, people have just been announcing their E3 games. I think everybody's sort of afraid that somebody has something way bigger in the pipeline. Yeah, and a lot of this stuff is 2015. There's just not much for 2014. No, so I felt like we should make our own 3D, our own, our own E3 rumors. Uh, okay, so let's start with Sonic the Hedgehog uh, first-person shooter starring uh, Grenadier the Pufferfish. Yep, uh, we have. I, I have a feeling that Final Fantasy 15 will be delayed and renamed Final Fantasy 16. And Reggie fils will be revealed to an army of carnivorous bees with telepathic abilities, projecting the image of a meat man. Releasing this holiday season exclusively for Wii U. <laughs> I hate you, Daniel. <laughs> That's it for news this week. Is, is that libel? There's a couple games here at Built to Play that we seem to run into over and over again. Final Fantasy, Phoenix Wright, and Dark Souls, to name a few. But there's one game that we've talked about a lot that is just as interesting because of its translation. And it's been worked on by fans and professionals alike. These days, it's considered a beloved gem. So this week on Built to Play, we're exploring the localization of Earthbound and the rest of the Mother series. But before we dive in, for those who don't know, what's an Earthbound? Earthbound is a game that came out uh, in the 90s, and it takes place in a modern setting, which was very different. Um, It had some pretty bizarre themes for an RPG in the 90s, and even by today's standards. Uh, Commercially, it kind of failed and became a cult classic over the years. That's Jeff Benson. He's the director of an upcoming documentary about the game. Created by Shigesato Itoi, Earthbound stars Ness, a boy living in Eagle Land. He has to leave his family home to stop an evil alien from taking over the world. Earthbound was weird at the time for a number of reasons. First, it was a role-playing game set in the modern day. Ness was a kid who lived in a suburb and fought street punks with a bat. It looked nothing like the other RPGs of the time, Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy. It also came out in North America at a weird time. It was June 1995. Sega had just released their brand new console, the Sega Saturn, and newcomer Sony planned on selling the PlayStation in September. Meanwhile, the Super Nintendo was starting to look old. There's a bunch of different theories as to why it didn't go over very well. Some people blame the advertising. Um, when the game came out, it had the tagline, this game stinks. Uh, and it was, oh, let's see, it was it was the 90s, and so a lot of the advertising had to do with gross-out culture, like the Nickelodeon slime type thing, um, fart jokes and stinky gym socks and stuff like that. The game was very popular in Japan, but in, in America, not so much. I think it was a combination of that and probably... Uh, the the large price tag that came with it, but it came in a very large box. It came with a strategy guide because Nintendo wanted to be sure uh, that people knew how to navigate through the game since it was such a... The scope is so large and you could do so much in it. You could really roam around and explore a lot of things. And uh, They wanted people to be able to have fun and not feel necessarily overwhelmed by it. Reviews weren't great, and in the end, it didn't sell very well. Nintendo considered the game unsuccessful. But people still found that game, and it wasn't long until a whole community formed around it. Well, I grew up with Earthbound. Um, It was a a point of connection for my family. Uh, My father loved playing it, and so did my brother and myself. Um, I was very young, and my my dad would read the, the text on the screen because I couldn't quite read yet and eventually he would read it too slow to the point where I just started learning how to read so I could actually (laughs) play the the game independently 
Um, but uh, as an adult, you know, I, I look at the game and it represents these little moments that you can really enjoy. Um, and the moments have a huge scope of, of emotions. They, they go from very sad to uh, very exciting, very happy, very goofy, very frightening. Uh, you, you run into a multitude of these different environments and people, and they all represent this different aspect of growing up. And that was different back in the 90s for a game. Uh, and it's still a little bit different now. It's, it's starting to become more more popular as time goes on, especially as the people who played Earthbound have grown up and gotten into game development. Uh, I think it's very exciting to see. Why did you decide to work on a documentary about this game? I had made a video about Earthbound when I was five years old. After I had completed the game with my family, uh, my brother and I, we would make movies on a VHS camera, and for some reason we thought, well, we should make an Earthbound movie. And so we got our dad to <laughs> run the VHS camera, and uh, we kind of set off on this adventure to essentially remake Earthbound in a uh, movie format. Did you hear that big bang out there? Yeah. Well, I think something's going on around here, so I'm going out in the front yard. You want to come with me and check it out? Yeah, sure. But we were, I was five and my brother was seven. And so by the time we got outside of our house, we, uh, <laughs> we kind of stopped. We just didn't know what we were doing anymore uh, in terms of making a film. We, we, we were very naive. Um, so that was a long time ago. And, and I eventually, 10 years later with my brother and, and some friends, found that VHS tape and we just kept adding on to it without uh, really... <laughs> explaining the time jumps and, you know, decades later, suddenly uh, we're all older. Would you like to come along with me? I'm checking out that weird bank. Sure. Uh, on second thought, I don't want you to. But I put that on Starman.net. Starman.net contains the largest community of Earthbound fans. If you want any resource or in piece of information about that game, Starman.net is where you go. That led me to Reed Young, who is one of the founders of Starman.net, and we kind of became close friends. And as I learned more about Starman.net's history and what the community was doing through over the years to try to get the games, the other Earthbound games or the Mother series localized in America, um, it was a fascinating story. Um, it was an uphill battle. It was an underdog story. It was a, a crazy adventure just as much as the game is and so i want to put that on camera for people to see because there's a whole new generation that's now getting into earthbound and uh, surprisingly a lot of them don't know about sermon.net Jeff Benson works at Fangamer, and he's the director of an upcoming documentary, Earthbound USA. It'll be out in 2015. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff B. Benson. Now, what's not immediately evident when you play Earthbound is that it's actually part of a series. In Japan, Earthbound was known as Mother 2. There's a whole original Famicom game that never came out in America. Uh, I got into it because I had seen the advertisement in Nintendo Power for, for Mother 1, which was... We, we called that Earthbound Zero back in the 80s, I think. 
And it was, they kind of pitched it. It was a very small advertisement. But they pitched it as this, this kind of alternative RPG. It was not, you know, swords and sorcery. It was this kid, you know, in a ball cap, and he's got a mom. And I'm like, this is kind of cool because it's 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 the obvious, you know, elephant in the room. Nobody's done this yet. You know, why why not? Why hasn't anybody done this yet? And that game was, you know, canceled. Which is weird because that game was translated into English. The job was just finished a little too late. For Super Nintendo, it was just a year away. So the marketing team didn't feel the need to release it. By the way, the guy you just heard, he's one of the first people to ever play the first Mother game. He's a fan translator called Steve Demeter. I got an email one day from a guy. And uh, he's like, look, I have this ROM dump. Well, what it was was, a, you know, a guy, a collector had received one of the units from, I don't know, a garage sale or something. And he's like, look, you know, can you help me get this thing dumped into a ROM? And we're like, sure. For a long time, people thought the Mother 1 translation was a hoax. A prototype showed up in 1998 on a message board. Some guy had somehow taken the game from Nintendo of America and was willing to sell it. Eventually, it landed in the hands of a guy named Kenny Brooks for $100. And it turned out to be totally real. It was a nearly finished translation of Mother 1. But Kenny refused to share the ROM. Steve, being the enterprising fan translator, asked Kenny to rent the game so he could copy it and post it online. Kenny said sure, but since it made the game less rare, he asked for a fee, specifically $400. Steve had a pretty big fan base from his other translations and managed to pull together the money. Then he fixed it up, dumped the ROM, and called it Earthbound Zero. You know, I, I essentially led the effort to, to publicize it and release it and, and bring it to the people. And that was, that was really all it was. How sophisticated was it? Was it fully done? Yeah, I think it could have used a, you know, a once over. I think by Nintendo standards it was done. Uh there was content like cigarettes that were, you know, removed from the Japanese version. There were um features like a like a you hold the B button to run. Uh there was a map that was added. So it was it was polished beyond the Japanese original. Uh, but we did notice some some spelling errors, as you do, and we just corrected those. But you know, it was it was at a very, very polished state when we when it got to us. So, for those who haven't played Mother One at all, um, how what is that game like? I mean, it's this it's the same game as as Earthbound in spirit. What they were doing with Earthbound was kind of like what you do with Zelda. You kind of you know shake it up a bit and spit it back out in a new system. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, there were some kind of rough edges that didn't really work in the first one that they went ahead and fixed in the second. And there were things that I think they got better in the first that they didn't do as well in the second. I like it. I like it because it's, again, because it's not that, it's not the popular one. It's, it's the one the kids aren't talking about, you know. Steve Demeter is better known as Demiforce Online. He's currently working on Trism 2. You can find Earthbound Zero on Starman.net. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's return to 1994. Mother 2 had just come out in Japan, and Nintendo of America was trying to figure out what they were going to do with this new weird game. Really, the, the job at Nintendo, this was 20 years ago, um, that I had was, was technically called, uh, I think my job title was software analyst and what we did was a lot of the support work for games that were done usually in japan but sometimes at other developers too and we would write manuals and and do a lot of the you know coordination with testing and things like that 
Um, but occasionally we'd get a job where there was a lot of writing involved. And, and those didn't come along real often. Um, but in my case, I, I was asked if I wanted to work on Earthbound. That's Marcus Limblom, Earthbound's final editor. Marcus had edited a couple games before this, but none of them had had this much dialogue. And went ahead and, and accepted the job because, I mean, it was a really interesting project. So, you know, it sounded like it was going to give me a lot of creative uh, input and things like that because a lot of the jokes and a lot of the work and things like that that were in the game done for Japan needed to possibly get altered for the U.S. market. So he partnered up with Japanese writer Masayuki Miura to translate the game and edit in time for release. So Miura-san was uh, a person that worked with Ape, and he came and was at Nintendo of America for, I don't know, maybe at least a month, I would say, and we worked, you know, really closely every day, just pouring over all the parts of the text and things, because a lot of the areas in the game weren't playable when we were doing the writing. So he would kind of have to explain to me all the things that you could see on screen at that time. And he would go into, you know, nuances about the, the Japanese text and try to explain to me the sort of tone of what was going on in Japanese. And um, it really was uh, a very interesting but, but tough job in a lot of ways because, as he would say, you know, Itoi's writing in Japanese is also very difficult to translate. Yeah, like even in Japanese... A lot of times people in Japan, he, I remember him telling me that they don't always understand the jokes or the, you know, the subtleties of, of what he would put into the Japanese. So trying to work through that in the English was, was also you know, one of the difficult things about the project, but ultimately really um, satisfying because, like I said, I got to do a lot of things that I could make changes. You know, and they, they gave me a lot of latitude and freedom to, to do things that... In, at the end, I hoped would translate well into a, you know, a good good batch of game text uh, for the game for North America. So, now, what were the biggest challenges on a technical level? Just a matter of having to work with a version of a game that wasn't quite functional. We made a number of changes to artwork, and you know, and of course, like I mentioned, systems and things like that that dealt with language. That the game wasn't running for some large portion of the time I was working on it, or at least it only ran for a very you know, small part of the game. And so that made it really difficult at times to sort of know what I was going to be, know that what I was going to be writing or what I was going to be saying was going to match what was on screen at that time. And that was like my personal biggest concern the whole time that I was writing, because I was always worried that what I thought you know, was going on would be slightly different. And therefore then the text would just, feel out of sync with what was going on on screen. And that certainly happened a few times, like when I have seen the game and um, all these years later and, and seen parts or where people talk about things and I realize that, you know, it, it was somewhat because of my lack of being able to see what was on screen. And that's why some of the stuff came off. In my opinion, it comes off a little strange at times. Could you give me an example of something that felt a little weird in hindsight? Um... Well, I think there's a whole bunch of them, to be honest with you, if I, if I sort of thought hard, long and hard about it. But the one, the one that I, I know just off the top of my head that I can think of, um, first and foremost, you know, early on in the game, really early on, there's a long speech by Buzz Buzz, the, you know, the little bee kind of monster. A bee I am not. 
I'm from 10 years in the future, and in the future, all is devastation. Gygus, the universal cosmic destroyer, send all to the horror of eternal darkness. It, it's 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 very deep, and it's got a lot of sort of philosophical ideas that kind of tied into it, and not really knowing exactly what the whole game was going to be like. And even at that time, I think when I was working on the very early part of the game, I didn't really have a good feel about how the whole game flowed yet. And so I did this writing where I kind of tried to, to, to match the tone to some degree. Um, ultimately, when I look at it today, it feels pretty stilted to me. And so I've never really been a big fan of Buzz Buzz's speech early in the game. Um, and that's sort of one of those, those bigger cases. Um, and, and I think there are times when there are just nuanced things, you know, throughout the game that even though Miyuta-san would try to explain to me everything that was going on, I mean, I, th- I think it, there were just moments when s- stuff like that just, I, 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 I think I missed things. For all their enthusiasm, Earthbound was a nightmare to work on. Most of the work was done in just four months, and the script was huge. Marcus basically wrote an entire book. Well, so this is really early in the, you know, sort of world of localization and the world of doing this kind of work. And so there was nothing in the way of tools for us to use. The The text itself is is done in just this giant, you know, text file that the game reads. And we actually did print it out so that I could sort of look at, it, you know, all the different lines in different places and things like that. And it ended up being a stack of papers like... I don't know, six inches high or something like that. And so it was, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages long. A lot of it is, you know, sort of just programming sort of cruft, you know, and things like that mixed in with text. And so you'd have these lines of text embedded in, you know, all this other, these other characters and things like that. Um, but it was, it was really uh, rudimentary localization work. So it was sort of brute force, not very, uh, not very elegant at all. Now, if you had a stack of uh, paper that was about six inches high, what kind of hours are you putting into this game? Oh, I worked really, really hard. Um, uh, my daughter was born in February, and so I took a day the day she was born. But for the next, I think, and I think it was something like 27 or 28 or 30 days or something like that, um, I basically worked every day. So I was at the office weekends and everything, and, you know, it was sort of your typical huge crunch kind of mode where it was 14 hour days and that kind of thing you know from the time i started it needed to be on the shelf within about six months and so we were we were working as fast as possible so i really did the the localization the bulk of the localization work i did in i don't know probably like 10 weeks maybe three months time at the most the the thing that i would do is is when she would wake up in the middle of the night is i would actually feed her in the middle of the night um and that was my chance to sort of sit with her and, you know, do the dad bonding thing, you know, during that time. And so uh, she was she was okay with that. Luckily, her mom was there helping her out and things. But, yeah, she, my, my wife has been uh, – she was amazingly understanding and she has been amazingly understanding throughout my whole game industry career because there's, there's always been periods of crunch time. And, and she really is an, an amazingly understanding woman that – you know, thankfully she stuck by me this this whole time, so. And after all that, Earthbound was still a dud. People didn't buy it. Critics gave it mixed reviews. 
I so I I'd gone to EA after I worked at Nintendo and worked there for a couple of years, and then I went to to work at a small kind of independent game developer, and I was there in Florida, and it was a couple of years in Florida that, and then my wife said, you know, we got to get back to the West Coast, um, but I knew a, you know a number of guys that uh, you know told me later, you know, many years later, just within the last couple of years, they they were surprised that I had worked on Earthbound at all because they said. You know, we'd had no idea that you worked on it. We, you never talked about it, and 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 they were all right. I mean, I never brought it up. I didn't really think about it that much. I, I like I said, I knew that it was a game I was proud of. I was proud of all the work. Like I said, um, I, I liked the fact that I had uh, the input that I did. But like I said, I really thought that most people had moved on by that time and and really didn't think about it. it it happens when you see your game in bargain bins for 10 bucks or whatever you you know i don't think you can help but kind of think well nobody's going to really ever remember this game and when was it that you kind of discovered that this thing had legs um i don't think i really really realized it until probably you know and that's kind of hard to pinpoint but I think I think it would have been probably in the 2005-ish sort of time period where I realized that you know there was a website that actually seemed pretty popular I mean I I know that there are a lot of games that might get you know a fan website and things like that but a lot of times they're for games that you think are kind of obscure or you know something that that nobody would really remember those fan websites tend to be really quiet or uh you know something that it seems like one person really loves it and maybe a couple of other people and 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 they're the ones doing all the posting and all the writing and and things like that but with with earthbound they had the starmen.net site that uh i think early on was i think might have been called earthbound.net um but it seemed really vibrant and it seemed like there was lots of activity and lots of people that were contributing. And so when I kind of went there, you know, a few times, I, I, I did finally, I think, realize, well, there is a lot more impact. And then, you know, secondarily, the other thing that I realized was, and at some point after that, I, cause I think I saw it on starman.net, I realized people were paying a lot of money for, for carts of the game. And so it felt like there was some, level of uh demand that people had for the game and so that that made a uh an impression on me as well and made me realize the game itself is something that people really did enjoy and and there is demand uh even to buy it secondhand you know for well above what you know i probably would have ever thought it would have gone for so you know those were the things that that made me realize the game had a lot a lot longer legs than than I ever would have guessed, and and it really is a game that has uh, a devoted following that that I, never ceases to amaze me. Marcus Lindbaum is a game designer at Carried Away Games. He used to be a software analyst in Nintendo of America's Game Group. You can find him on Twitter at Carried Away Games. You might be surprised to know that we still have one more game to talk about. Mother 3, the last game in this series, never came out in North America. That's in spite of screaming from the dedicated fanbase who wanted desperately to see the game come out here. But Nintendo never brought it. So in 2009, Jeff Urbrecht and a bunch of fan translators took this game into their own hands. It started off pretty much right when the game came out. Uh, 
there was a guy in a chat room who claimed to have the ROM file for the game, and uh, I I didn't believe him at first, so I sent him a private message just to see if he was telling the truth, and uh, he actually sent me the ROM file, and and it was real. It was the actual game. This uh, I think this was the day before it came out, as a matter of fact. So someone must have leaked it. Uh, maybe someone who owned a game store or something had leaked the ROM. And like pretty much right away, I started talking to this guy who sent me the ROM file about the possibility of starting a translation project because uh, he was he was into that stuff too. He um, he's the one who actually started a whole website and forum for us, and it just kind of came naturally. I mean, I knew who I would talk to about it because I knew at that point who was good at ROM hacking and who could be able to help out, and we just uh, made a small team together. Mother 3 came out in 2006 for the Game Boy Advance. It was Shigesato Itoi's last RPG. A lot of people wanted this game badly, including professional translators like Clyde Mandolin. Clyde works as a translator at Funimation and spends most of his time translating anime. But he loved Earthbound enough to roll up his sleeves and take on the project himself. He gathered a who's who of fan translators, like Steve Demeter. I knew all the guys, and they're like, look, we'll give you this role if you want it. I'm like, sure. Uh, they wanted to let me edit the whole thing originally, but... You know, I, I've run a company now for the past six years, and I couldn't find the time to do that. So my role eventually, I cut it down from from uh, doing the entire editing job to doing just the, the proofing and editing for the uh, uh, kind of the cross-dressers. I felt as the, as the token gay, I should contribute that to the game at least. So you gave the game a little bit of taste. A little bit, a little sass. <laughs> so see that walk. Why did you get back into working on, uh, working on these projects uh, with Mother Three? Oh, it was Mother. Come on, it's it's be famous. Well, I can't. I couldn't not do that. I mean, come on, it's like it's just such a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's 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 uh, top quality people, uh, great game. You know, contemporary. I mean, you know, we were always doing these translations of games that were like a decade old or more. This was like you know about as new as they were allowing it. You know, we didn't want to do anything that was going to have a potential to be brought out in the States, but once they got the okay that it was not going to come out here, they're like, let's do it. And I'm like, hell yeah. So, yeah, why not? And when Jeff's group fell apart, he joins Clyde's. Jeff did around half of the programming for the localization by himself while Clyde took care of the rest. I guess I had a lot of free time around then. I was still in high school at the time. So I, I felt like I had a lot of free time on my hands compared to people who had, like, full-time jobs and stuff. So I ended up doing a lot of programming work because I could. And, you know, Clyde Tomato ended up doing a lot of translating work because he could. But uh, a lot of people may not realize he actually did quite a lot of programming work as well. Uh, maybe even more than I did. So he's just a working machine, I guess. I mean, you must have still had homework. Um, how did you manage to balance out going to high school and, I mean, this is, I mean, it's not intense programming, but it is fairly sophisticated what you have to do to put this together. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I I mean, I tried to do my homework at school and maybe as soon as I got home. Uh, of course, school ended like mid-afternoon. So, you know, before dinner time, I could have all my homework done. And then and usually I would spend the rest of the evening just working on the translation. Now, for those who don't know, what is the what do you need to do in order to get a, tr- a new translation packed into a ROM? Well, it's... It's basically just a gigantic reverse engineering uh, project. Uh, you don't have any of the source code for reference. 
So you have to go through compiled binary code, and you need to like change the exact specific bytes to what they need to be changed to. Uh, and it's just on a really huge scale, so you really have to know what you're doing at the same time. Does the were there any challenges that were particularly mal- uh, maddening? Yeah, um, I think if you were to go back to the blog and find maybe the things that we were most frustrated with, it was definitely something called uh, the VWF, which stands for variable width font. Um, what that is is typically in Japanese games, their their alphabet has characters that are pretty much the same width. So when they when they want to display Japanese text on a screen, they can sort of turn it into a grid where every square contains one character. And it would look fine because the letters are naturally spaced about the same width. Um, but that doesn't look as good in English because we have skinny letters and we have wide letters. Like uh, the letter L is a lot skinnier than the letter W, for instance. So for English games, it's desirable to hack the game so that you can have what's called variable width fonts, which means you can display a skinny letter, and then immediately after it, you can have a wide letter, and then maybe another skinny letter, so that there's no gigantic spaces in between. Um, That ended up being incredibly difficult, and it was made worse by the fact that different parts of the game appeared to be programmed by different people, so the code that we were hacking was completely different. You know, like if we were hacking the dialogue, it was completely different from hacking the item menus, for instance. We had to do a completely new hack for different parts of the game. And uh, that in particular was very maddening. In the end, the project took them about three years of translating, programming, and testing. Their translation also became insanely popular. People who didn't even care about the Mother series checked in. When we had the blog up, uh, when we were posting updates almost daily on our progress. And it was so fun just to see people commenting on it, saying how they couldn't wait for it. And I think we ended up delivering something really high quality, something that a lot of people enjoyed. Uh, Perhaps even got new fans into the series because of it. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. How did you respond to a lot of the the fans coming out and uh, telling you how much they wanted this game? Was it ever surprising for you? I, I think it was a bit surprising. I, For instance, one of the final blog posts, I think the one when we finally announced the patch was coming out at the end of the week, I think we got like 2,000 comments on that one post or something, and that was just incredible because uh, it really showed how many people were really paying attention to all of our updates and who were really eagerly awaiting it. And uh, I thought that was just really neat. Meanwhile... Steve and Marcus were just happy they finished it. Like Marcus, they wrote a book-sized script, but this time, for free. Oh man, just the whole thing. Just the, again, like the fact that it got done, the fact that such good people were on it, and uh, they went ahead and, and, and announced it, and it was done, and it was polished, and no drama, no bickering, everybody's professional. Um, the, the website's been maintained, the, the message has been correct. Uh, Nintendo, Nintendo knows about us, and they're not pissed off at us. That alone right there is, is a milestone, which I think people kind of gloss over. It's like there's no uh, bad blood with anything. If anything, it's, it's the best, I think, example of, of not only a product, but, a, but a, an effort uh, that you can ask for. I mean, I'm really glad that there were fans that, that took the Mother 3 work and, 
and did that translation. I mean, I can't even imagine how much work that would have been. And you know, when I did mine, I mean, I it was my job. I was paid for it, thank goodness. And and it was you know a lot of work and things. But it, it it's another indication to me of how amazing the fan community is. Um, Clyde Mandolin, who did that translation work, I mean, is is a, a really uh, fantastic Earthbound fan, and he's the kind of guy that is just really indicative of, of the strength of the fan base. Jeff Benson watched the translation come together, like a lot of people who hung around on Starman.net. From his point of view, Mother 3 just felt like a victory. The game wasn't cancelled, it wasn't a flop, and Nintendo never shut the project down. I don't know, I think it, there was this tone in the air that <laughs> people felt like they were finally winning. <laughs> Like they were finally getting this thing that they had sought after for so long. So um, it was just a very positive vibe. People were all very excited and very supportive. And that's uh, that's something that's pretty common in the, the Earthbound community. But with the fan translation, it was on a massive scale. Jeff Urbrecht is a student at the University of Waterloo. He's better known online as Jeff Man. You can find their translation their of Mother 3 at starman.net. Earthbound is available on the Wii U Virtual Console, or on eBay for about $100. By the way, Nintendo, if you ever decide to bring over Mother 3, they're willing to share the script. You know, to get things started. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Igbali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen, built to play was made with the help of... Jeff Benson. Steve Demeter. Marcus Lindblom. And Jeff Erbrecht. For extended versions of the interviews you just heard, check out our website, builttoplay.ca, where we have our full archives of a bunch of interviews we've done, and we're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing, and more people can find the show. But leave us a positive review, because if you leave us a negative review, we'll make you use the claw control on Monster Hunter for the PSP. We're usually in the air at Scope Horizon every 1 p.m., and we're starting our new theme month this week on the site, just in time for E3, Failure. We have a primer on failure already up on the site, and we update the website generally every Sunday with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, at Play and me personally, at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. Remember, follow us on Twitter, at Play to make sure you get all of the updates at E3. And remember, don't make me bury you with a PSP. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>